Chapter Five of Green Mantle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Green Mantle by John Buchan. Chapter Five Further Adventures of the Same. Next morning there was a touch of frost and a nip in the air which stirred my blood and put me in buoyant spirits. I forgot my precarious position and the long road I had still to travel. I came down to breakfast in great form, to find Peter's even temper badly ruffled. He had remembered Stum in the night and disliked the memory. This he muttered to me as we rubbed shoulders at the dining-room door. Peter and I got no opportunity for private talk. The lieutenant was with us all the time, and at night we were locked in our rooms. Peter discovered this through trying to get out to find matches, for he had the bad habit of smoking in bed. Our guide started on the telephone and announced that we were to be taken to see a prisoner's camp. In the afternoon I was to go somewhere with Stum, but the morning was for sightseeing. "'You will see,' he told us, "'how merciful is a great people. You will also see some of the hated English in our power. That will delight you. They are the forerunners of all their nation.' We drove in a taxi through the suburbs and then over a stretch of flat market-garden-like country to a low rise of wooded hills. After an hour's ride we entered the gate of what looked like a big reformatory or hospital. I believe it had been a home for destitute children. There were sentries at the gate and massive concentric circles of barbed wire through which we passed under an arch that was let down like a portcullis at nightfall. The lieutenant showed his permit and we ran the car into a brick-paved yard and marched through a lot more sentries to the office of the commandant. He was away from home, and we were welcomed by his deputy, a pale young man with a head nearly bald. There were introductions in German which our guide translated into Dutch, and a lot of elegant speeches about how Germany was foremost in humanity as well as martial valor. Then they stood us sandwiches and beer, and we formed a procession for a tour of inspection. There were two doctors, both mild-looking men in spectacles, and a couple of warders, under-officers of the good old burly, bullying sort I knew well. That was the cement which kept the German army together. Her men were nothing to boast of on the average, no more were the officers, even in crack corps like the guards and the Brandenburgers, but they seemed to have an inexhaustible supply of hard, competent NCOs. We marched round the wash-houses, the recreation ground, the kitchens, the hospital, with nobody in it save one chap with the flu. It didn't seem to be badly done. This place was entirely for officers, and I expect it was a show-place where American visitors were taken. If half the stories one heard were true, there were some pretty ghastly prisons away in South and East Germany. I didn't half like the business. To be a prisoner has always seemed to me about the worst thing that could happen to a man. The sight of German prisoners used to give me a bad feeling inside, whereas I looked at dead Boches with nothing but satisfaction. Besides, there was the off-chance that I might be recognized. So I kept very much in the shadow whenever we passed anybody in the corridors. The few we met passed us incuriously. They saluted the deputy commandant, but scarcely wasted a glance on us. No doubt they thought we were inquisitive Germans, come to gloat over them. They looked fairly fit, but a little puffy about the eyes, like men who get too little exercise. They seemed thin, too. I expect the food for all the commandant's talk was nothing to boast of. 
In one room people were writing letters. It was a big place, with only a tiny stove to warm it, and the windows were shut so that the atmosphere was a cold frost. In another room a fellow was lecturing on something to a dozen hearers and drawing figures on a blackboard. Some were in ordinary khaki, others in any old thing they could pick up, and most wore greatcoats. Your blood gets thin when you have nothing to do but hope against hope, and think of your pals and the old days. I was moving along, listening with half an ear to the lieutenant's prattle and the loud explanations of the deputy commandant, when I pitchforked into what might have been the end of my business. We were going through a sort of convalescent room, where people were sitting who had been in hospital. It was a big place, a little warmer than the rest of the building, but still abominably fuggy. There were about half a dozen men in the room, reading and playing games. They looked at us with lacklustre eyes for a moment, and then returned to their occupations. Being convalescents, I suppose they were not expected to get up and salute. All but one, who was playing patience at a little table by which we passed. I was feeling very bad about the thing, for I hated to see these good fellows locked away in this infernal German hole, when they might have been giving the Bosch his desserts at the front. The Commandant went first with Peter, who had developed a great interest in prisons. Then came our lieutenant with one of the doctors, then a couple of warders, and then the second doctor and myself. I was absent-minded at the moment, and was last in the queue. The patient's player suddenly looked up, and I saw his face. I'm hanged if it wasn't Dolly Riddle, who was our brigade machine-gun officer at Luz. I had heard that the Germans had got him when they blew up a mine at the quarries. I had to act pretty quick, for his mouth was agape, and I saw he was going to speak. The doctor was a yard ahead of me. I stumbled and spilt his cards on the floor. Then I kneeled to pick them up and gripped his knee. His head bent to help me, and I spoke low in his ear. I'm Hene, all right. For God's sake, don't wink an eye. I'm here on a secret job. The doctor had turned to see what was the matter. I got a few more words in. Cheer up, old man. We're winning, hands down. Then I began to talk excited Dutch, and finished the collection of the cards. Dolly was playing his part well, smiling as if he was amused by the antics of a monkey. The others were coming back, the deputy commandant with an angry light in his dull eye. "'Speaking to the prisoners is forbidden,' he shouted. I looked blankly at him till the lieutenant translated. "'What kind of fellow is he?' said Dolly in English to the doctor. "'He spoils my game and then jabbers high Dutch at me.' Officially I knew English, and that speech of Dolly's gave me my cue. I pretended to be very angry with the very damned Englishman, and went out of the room close by the deputy commandant, grumbling like a sick jackal. After that I had to act a bit. The last place we visited was the close confinement part, where prisoners were kept as a punishment for some breach of the rules. They looked cheerless enough, but I pretended to gloat over the sight, and said so to the lieutenant, who passed it on to the others. I have rarely in my life felt such a cad. On the way home the lieutenant discoursed a lot about prisoners and detention camps, for at one time he had been on duty at Rulben. Peter, who had been in Quad more than once in his life, was deeply interested, and kept on questioning him. Among other things he told us was that they often put bogus prisoners among the rest, who acted as spies. If any plot to escape was hatched, these fellows got into it and encouraged it. They never interfered till the attempt was actually made, and then they had them on toast. There was nothing the Bosch liked so much as an excuse for sending a poor devil to solitary. 
That afternoon Peter and I separated. He was left behind with the lieutenant, and I was sent off to the station with my bag in the company of a Landsturm sergeant. Peter was very cross, and I didn't care for the look of things, but I brightened up when I heard I was going somewhere with Stoon. If he wanted to see me again, he must think me of some use, and if he was going to use me, he was bound to let me into his game. I'd like Stoom about as much as a dog likes a scorpion, but I hankered for his society. At the station platform, where the ornament of the Landstrom saved me all the trouble about tickets, I could not see my companion. I stood waiting while a great crowd, mostly of soldiers, swayed past me and filled all the front carriages. An officer spoke to me gruffly and told me to stand aside behind a wooden rail. I obeyed and suddenly found Stum's eyes looking down at me. "'You're no German?' he asked sharply. "'A dozen words,' I said carelessly. "'I've been to Windhoek and learned enough to ask for my dinner. Peter, my friend, speaks it a bit.' "'So,' said Stum. "'Well, get into the carriage. Not that one. There, thickhead!' I did as I was bid. He followed, and the door was locked behind us. The precaution was needless, for the sight of Stoom's profile at the platform end would have kept out the most brazen. I wondered if I had woken up his suspicions. I must be on my guard to show no signs of intelligence if he suddenly tried me in German. And that wouldn't be easy, for I knew it as well as I knew Dutch. We moved into the country, but the windows were blurred with frost, and I saw nothing of the landscape. Stoom was busy with papers and let me alone. I read on a notice that one was forbidden to smoke, so to show my ignorance of German I pulled out my pipe. Stoom raised his head, saw what I was doing, and gruffly bade me put it away, as if he were an old lady that disliked the smell of tobacco. In half an hour I got very bored, for I had nothing to read, and my pipe was verboten. People passed now and then in the corridors, but no one offered to enter. No doubt they saw the big figure in uniform, and thought he was the deuce of a staff swell who wanted solitude. I thought of stretching my legs in the corridor, and was just getting up to do it, when somebody slid the door back and a big figure blocked the light. He was wearing a heavy ulster and a green felt hat. He saluted Stum, who looked up angrily, and smiled pleasantly on us both. "'Say, gentlemen,' he said, "'have you room in here for a little one?' I guess I'm about smoked out of my car by your brave soldiers. I've gotten a delicate stomach. Stum had risen with a brow of wrath, and looked as if he were going to pitch the intruder off the train. Then he seemed to halt and collect himself, and the other's face broke into a friendly grin. Why, it's Colonel Stum, he cried. He pronounced it like the first syllable in stomach. Very pleased to meet you again, Colonel. I had the honor of making your acquaintance at our embassy. I reckon Ambassador Gerard didn't cotton to our conversation that night, and the newcomer plumped himself down in the corner opposite me. I had been pretty certain I would run across blank iron somewhere in Germany, but I didn't think it would be so soon. There he sat, staring at me with his full, unseeing eyes, rolling out platitudes to Stum, who was nearly bursting in his effort to keep civil. I looked moody and suspicious, which I took to be the right line. "'Things are getting a bit dead at Solonica,' said Mr. Blank Iron, by way of a conversational opening. Stum pointed to a notice which warned officers to refrain from discussing military operations with mixed company in a railway carriage. "'Sorry,' said Blank Iron, 
I can't read that tombstone language of yours, but I reckon that that notice to trespassers, whatever it signifies, don't apply to you and me. I take it this gentleman is in your party. I sat and scowled, fixing the American with suspicious eyes. He's a Dutchman, said Stum, South African Dutch, and he is not happy, for he does not like to hear English spoken. We'll shake on that, said Blank Iron cordially, but who said I spoke English? It's good American. Cheer up, friend, for it isn't the call that makes the big wapiti, as they say out west in my country. I hate John Bull worse than a poison rattle. The colonel can tell you that. I dare say he could, but at that moment we slowed down at a station, and Stum got up to leave. Good day to you, Herr Blankiron, he cried over his shoulder. If you consider your comfort, don't talk English to strange travellers. They don't distinguish between the different brands. I followed him in a hurry, but was recalled by Blankiron's voice. Say, friend, he shouted, you've left your grip, and he handed me my bag from the luggage rack. But he showed no sign of recognition, and the last I saw of him was sitting sunk in a corner with his head on his chest as if he were going to sleep. He was a man who kept up his parts well. There was a motor-car waiting, one of the grey military kind, and we started at a terrific pace over bad forest roads. Stum had put away his papers in a portfolio, and flung me a few sentences on the journey. "'I haven't made up my mind about you, Brandt,' he announced. "'You may be a fool or a knave or a good man. If you are a knave, we will shoot you.' "'And if I am a fool?' I asked. "'Send you to the Ether of Divine. You will be respectable, Canon Father. You cannot do that unless I consent,' I said. "'Can't we?' he said, smiling wickedly. "'Remember, you are a citizen of nowhere.' Technically, you are a rebel, and the British, if you go to them, will hang you, supposing they have any sense. You are in our power, my friend, to do precisely what we like with you. He was silent for a second, and then he said meditatively, But I don't think you are a fool. You may be a scoundrel. Some kinds of scoundrel are useful enough. Other kinds are strung up with a rope. Of that, we shall know more soon. And if I am a good man, you will be given a chance to serve Germany, the proudest privilege a mortal man can have. The strange man said this with a ringing sincerity in his voice that impressed me. The car swung out from the trees into a park lined with saplings, and in the twilight I saw before me a biggish house like an overgrown Swiss chalet. There was a kind of archway with a sham portcullis, and a terrace with battlements which looked as if they were made of stucco. We drew up at a gothic front door, where a thin, middle-aged man in a shooting-jacket was waiting. As we moved into the lighted hall, I got a good look at our host. He was very lean and brown, with the stoop in the shoulder that one gets from being constantly on horseback. He had untidy grizzled hair and a ragged beard, and a pair of pleasant, short-sighted brown eyes. "'Welcome, my colonel,' he said. "'Is this the friend you spoke of?' "'This is the Dutchman,' said Stum. "'His name is Brandt.' Brandt, you see before you, Herr Gordian. I knew the name, of course. There weren't many in my profession that didn't. He was one of the biggest railway engineers in the world, the man who had built the Baghdad and Syrian railways and the new lines in German East. I suppose he was about the greatest living authority on tropical construction. He knew the East and he knew Africa. 
Clearly I had been brought down for him to put me through my paces. A blonde maid-servant took me to my room, which had a bare polished floor, a stove, and windows that, unlike most of the German kind I had sampled, seemed made to open. When I had washed, I descended to the hall, which was hung round with trophies of travel, like dervish jibbas and Maasai shields, and one or two good buffalo heads. Presently a bell was rung. Stum appeared with his host, and we went in to supper. I was jolly hungry, and would have made a good meal, if I hadn't constantly had to keep jogging my wits. The other two talked in German, and when a question was put to me, Stum translated. The first thing I had to do was to pretend I didn't know German, and look listlessly round the room while they were talking. The second was to miss not a word, for there lay my chance. The third was to be ready to answer questions at any moment, and to show in the answering that I had not followed the previous conversation. Likewise, I must not prove myself a fool in these answers, for I had to convince them that I was useful. It took some doing, and I felt like a witness in the box under a stiff cross-examination, or a man trying to play three games of chess at once. I heard Stum telling Gordien the gist of my plan. The engineer shook his head. Too late, he said. It should have been done at the beginning. We neglected Africa. You know the reason why. Stum laughed. The one in Heim. Perhaps, but her charm works well enough. Gordien glanced towards me while I was busy with an orange salad. I have much to tell you of that, but it can wait. Your friend is right in one thing. Uganda is a vital spot for the English, and a blow there will make their whole fabric shiver. But how can we strike? They have still the coast, and our supplies grow daily smaller. We can send no reinforcements. But have we used all the local resources? That is what I cannot satisfy myself about. Zimmerman says we have. But Tressler thinks differently, and now we have this fellow coming out of the void with a story which confirms my doubt. He seems to know his job. You try him. Thereupon, Gordian set about questioning me, and his questions were very thorough. I knew just enough and no more to get through, but I think I came out with credit. You see, I have a capacious memory, and in my time I had met scores of hunters and pioneers, and listened to their yarns, so I could pretend to knowledge of a place even when I hadn't been there. Besides, I had once been on the point of undertaking a job up Tanganyika way, and I had got up that countryside pretty accurately. "'You say that with our help you can make trouble for the British on the three borders?' Gordian asked at length. "'I can spread the fire if someone else will kindle it,' I said. "'But there are thousands of tribes with no affinities. "'They are all African. You can bear me out. "'All African peoples are alike in one thing. "'They can go mad, and the madness of one infects the others. "'The English know this well enough.' "'Where would you start the fire?' he asked. "'Where the fuel is driest, up in the north among the Mussulman peoples. "'But there you must help me. I know nothing about Islam, and I gather that you do.' "'Why?' he said. "'Because of what you have done already,' I answered. Stum had translated all this time, and had given the sense of my words very fairly. But with my last answer he took liberties. What he gave was, because the Dutchman thinks that we have some big card in dealing with the Muslim world. Then lowering his voice and raising his eyebrows, he said some word like, Unamantel. The other looked with a quick glance of apprehension at me. 
"'We had better continue our talk in private, Herr Colonel,' he said. "'If Herr Brandt will forgive us, we will leave him for a little to entertain himself.' He pushed the cigar-box towards me, and the two got up and left the room. I pulled my chair up to the stove, and would have liked to drop off to sleep. The tension of the talk at supper had made me very tired. I was accepted by these men for exactly what I professed to be. Stumm might suspect me of being a rascal, but it was a Dutch rascal. But all the same I was skating on thin ice. I could not sink myself utterly in the part, for if I did I would get no good out of being there. I had to keep my wits going all the time, and join the appearance and manners of a backfeld boar with the mentality of a British intelligence officer. Any moment the two parts might clash, and I would be faced with the most alert and deadly suspicion. There would be no mercy from Stumm. That large man was beginning to fascinate me, even though I hated him. Gaudien was clearly a good fellow, a white man and a gentleman. I could have worked with him, for he belonged to my own totem. But the other was an incarnation of all that makes Germany detested, and yet he wasn't altogether the ordinary German, and I couldn't help admiring him. I noticed he neither smoked nor drank. His grossness was apparently not in the way of fleshy appetites. Cruelty, for all I had heard of him in German Southwest, was his hobby. But there were other things in him, some of them good, and he had that kind of crazy patriotism which becomes a religion. I wondered why he had not some high command in the field, for he had had the name of a good soldier. But probably he was a big man in his own line, whatever it was, for the under-secretary fellow had talked small in his presence, and so great a man as Gaudien clearly respected him. There must be no lack of brains inside that funny pyramidal head. As I sat beside the stove, I was casting back to think if I had got the slightest clue to my real job. There seemed to be nothing so far. Stumm had talked of a von Einheim woman who was interested in his department, perhaps the same woman as the Hilda he had mentioned the day before to the undersecretary. There was not much in that. She was probably some minister's or ambassador's wife who had a finger in high politics. If I could have caught the word, Stumm had whispered to Gaudian, which made him start and look askance at me. But I had only heard a gurgle of something like Unmantel, which wasn't any German word that I knew. The heat put me into a half-doze, and I began dreamily to wonder what other people were doing. Where had Blank Iron been posting to in that train, and what was he up to at this moment? He had been hobnobbing with ambassadors and swells. I wondered if he had found out anything. What was Peter doing? I fervently hoped he was behaving himself, for I doubted if Peter had really tumbled to the delicacy of our job. Where was Sandy, too? As like as not, bucketing in the hold of some Greek coaster in the Aegean. Then I thought of my battalion, somewhere between Hulluk and La Bazie, hammering at the Bosch, while I was five hundred miles or so inside the Bosch frontier. It was a comic reflection, so comic that it woke me up. After trying in vain to find a way of stoking that stove, for it was a cold night, I got up and walked about the room. There were portraits of two decent old fellows, probably Gaudien's parents. There were enlarged photographs, too, of engineering works, and a good picture of Bismarck, and close to the stove there was a case of maps mounted on rollers. I pulled one out at random. It was a geological map of Germany, and with some trouble I found out where I was. I was an enormous distance from my goal, and moreover I was clean off the road to the east. 
To go there I must first go to Bavaria, and then into Austria. I noticed the Danube flowing eastwards, and remembered that that was one way to Constantinople. Then I tried another map. This one covered a big area, all Europe from the Rhine and as far east as Persia. I guessed that it was meant to show the Baghdad Railway and the through routes from Germany to Mesopotamia. There were markings on it, and as I looked closer I saw that there were dates scribbled in blue pencil, as if to denote the stages of a journey. The dates began in Europe, and continued right on into Asia Minor, and then south to Syria. For a moment my heart jumped, for I thought I had fallen by accident on the clue I wanted. But I never got that map examined. I heard footsteps in the corridor, and very gently I let the map roll up and turned away. When the door opened, I was bending over the stove, trying to get a light from my pipe. It was Gordien, to bid me join him in Stum in his study. On our way there, he put a kindly hand on my shoulder. I think he thought I was bullied by Stum, and wanted to tell me that he was my friend, and he had no other language than a pat on the back. The soldier was in his old position, with his elbows on the mantelpiece, and his formidable great jaw stuck out. "'Listen to me,' he said. "'Herr Godian and I are inclined to make use of you. "'You may be a charlatan, in which case you will be in the devil of a mess, "'and have yourself to thank for it. "'If you are a rogue, you will have little scope for roguery. "'We will see to that. "'If you are a fool, you will yourself suffer for it. "'But if you are a good man, you will have a fair chance, "'and if you succeed, we will not forget it.' "'Tomorrow I go home, and you will come with me and get your orders.' I made shift to stand at attention and salute. Gaudian spoke in a pleasant voice, as if he wanted to atone for Stum's imperiousness. "'We are men who love our fatherland, Herr Brandt,' he said. "'You are not of that fatherland, but at least you hate its enemies. "'Therefore we are allies, and trust each other like allies. "'Our victory is ordained by God, and we are none of us more than his instruments.' Stum translated in a sentence, and his voice was quite solemn. He held up his right hand, and so did Gaudien, like a man taking an oath, or a parson blessing his congregation. Then I realized something of the might of Germany. She produced good and bad, cads and gentlemen, but she could put a bit of the fanatic, into them all. End of chapter 5